it's hard for me to read the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident without singing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, are we recording? So you, you, how would you sing it? Oh, come on, John. No, seriously, I don't know. Really? Yeah, I don't know. We remember. hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I don't. And when I meet Thomas Jefferson, what? I'm going to, um, what is, how's it go? I'm going to convince him to include women in the sequel work. Okay, it's from, it's from Hamilton. I've I've never seen Hamilton. <gasps> I've never seen Hamilton. A moment ago, I said that we are a lot more alike than <laughs> it might actually seem. I, just, I, I realize I, now I was wrong about that. I think I think <laughs> I it's because you. everybody everybody in the world wanted to see Hamilton. Everyone was That's talking about it, and I just I just like ah, eh, I just don't oh, know. You're a contrarian. I, a little on that on that front, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. In which case, I'll, I I go back to my earlier statement of saying that you and I are actually a lot. <laughs> of We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. This is Untold, the Connecticut Mirror's news and culture podcast. We have three simple charges. Challenge assumptions, seek understanding, and leave nothing untold. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. This season, we're asking 246 years since those words were first written in the Declaration of Independence, what truths do we all still hold to be self-evident? In just a few weeks, many of us will go to the polls to choose new representatives, senators, governors, and state reps. And it's likely that there will be more young people in the voting booths next to us. In the midterm elections of 2014, just 15% of people aged 18 to 29 in Connecticut turned out to cast a vote. Four years later, in 2018, that number had doubled to 30 percent. In fact, it was a year that broke records for youth turnout across the nation. Throughout the season, we'll be looking at the issues that are driving young people's engagement with politics, the climate crisis, reproductive rights, gun violence, gay and trans rights, and access to the ballot box. But what about those issues is self-evident? Where do we have common ground as a nation and across generations? And where do we differ? All the people we'll invite into the studio to speak with us this season are in their 20s or even younger. To set the scene, we're assembling a panel of really, really engaged young people to explore why we've seen this resurgence in the interest in politics. We'll hear from Nani Sajeev, who does community work in the field of sexual and domestic violence, Ed Ford, who was elected to office as a Republican at the age of 20, and Vali Panjala, who at the age of 17 hasn't yet been able to vote, but they're already very active in politics. In the current political climate, it really does seem like basic human rights are not as self-evident as they should be. There's this huge faction of the country that doesn't think that we the people means we all the people of America. (laughs) 
we hold these truths to be self-evident. Um, you think about those words much? I, people don't really talk that way anymore, right? It's true. But what I do think a great deal about are things that seem obvious that actually are far more nuanced. Mm-mm. I think about that all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what my column is about, like having a sight line in t- a line of sight into something that seems obvious, but is far more nuanced. Yeah. Um, what about you? Well, I mean, just think about the America, such as it was, that these words were written in. Mm-hmm. An America that even then, you know, it almost feels comical to say that anything was self-evident at the time. Sure. There were debates on the floor about um, the legitimacy of humanity in black Americans, or I'll say black people because they weren't considered Americans, right? But the but the, the question of, or even the specifically the phrase of self-evident, it, it is hypocrisy to have written those down at a time where there was major debate around almost everything that went into the document. Sure. Look, even tracing back to the better, you know, angels of this document, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. The, the, the idea that happiness should be probably the currency that we trade in more than anything else is mm. self-evident, right? Like, what are we here to do? It's self-evident to me, at least, that we're not here to grind ourselves to a nub, mm. that we're not here to spend our short lives struggling mm-hmm. Uh, we're not here to have a world in which some people have a whole ton of stuff and a whole ton of people have almost nothing. Like, that to me is incredibly self-evident. And, I mean, I think part of the things that, that get in the way of progress in that way is that we are indoctrinated in this capitalist way of practice makes... Perfect. Perfect is what we're, <laughs> and we are in pursuit of perfection as yeah. opposed to it being in constant pursuit of progress. What I think is the only thing that is truly self-evident is that progress is not a stagnant state. And in order to reach a place where all men are actually created equal, mm-hmm. we have to adopt a mindset of progress, not perfection. I think that that's such an important topic, and it's one of the reasons I think, Mercy, that we want to make sure that we have a much younger group of people talking to us throughout the course of the season. I mean, the, our, we talked about this a lot, but having young voices as part of our conversation about what is self-evident in America just seemed like the right thing to do. I think that's right, and I think that you know when we talk about all of these issues, the access point, the the barrier to entry is when you turn 18 and become eligible to vote, right? And when we talk about civic engagement, the first step is you have to vote, you have to be engaged. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. And I think that we, we are finding that m- more of them, these young people, these youth, um, <laughs> are, are, are doing at least that first part. I mean, getting actively civically engaged. I mean, there is the sense that there was going to be a disenchantment with politics that would just keep young people away. And we've seen some indication that they've become more active in recent years, wanting to try to 
change the systems that we're all living in, trying to do that work that, frankly, a lot of us who are a little bit older haven't done all that well. Absolutely. And I think there is, like you said, a disenchantment to some degree, but also this idea that there, that the issues that we have seen in our society are far more simple to tackle than we've ever made them uh, seem. Young people walk into a situation and say, oh, well, that's not working. How about we do something different? But adults walk into a situation and say, well, you know, we can't do something different because you got to call the guy who does something different. And he's only in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the municipality shut down on Mondays and the whole nine. Right. But there's something here about simplicity. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are self-evident to an older set of Americans that just aren't to younger people at all. And I think in order for us to see the progress that folks like you and I want to see, we kind of have to give the mics away. Yeah, as much as, as, much as we possibly can. So let's do that. Hi, I'm Bruce Putterman, publisher of The Connecticut Mirror. Our public policy reporting strengthens democracy in two ways. It informs the public about its state government, and it acts as a watchdog to hold that government accountable. For 12 years now, members like you have participated in the work of the Connecticut Mirror through financial support. If you're already a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. If you haven't yet joined in the work of the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. Please go to ctmirror.org and click the red donate button today. Thank you. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Mercy Quay. Maybe the, the best way to get into this conversation is, is just to let each one of our guests just introduce themselves. And I don't know, you want to just find out a little bit about, about what brought them to this conversation? You want to learn something funky about them before we get in? Yeah, well, just, have, you know, funky or, or useful. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, we'll go with useful. Let's get started. Okay, um, well, Ed, why don't I start with you? Good to meet you, by the way. Oh, it's great to meet you both as well. Uh, my name is Ed Ford Jr. My pronouns are he and him. And something funky. I mean, I am an amateur guitarist. <laughs> I love to play guitar. Um, I played growing up at my church. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that definitely is a peaceful pastime that I love to do these days. So, so what do you think? What brings you to this conversation? Well, what brings me to this conversation is, you know, I've been an elected official. I've served on my town's board of education here in Middletown, Connecticut. I've served on the Common Council, and I'm just a firm believer in youth being involved, being involved in politics, you know, having a voice in their government. Um, you know, I, I strongly believe that we have a stake in the game. We have a stake in this system, uh, in this economy, in this country. So for our voices to be heard is vitally important. And that was the primary reason I, I stepped up to even run in the first place. That's awesome. Thanks, Ed. I, I, I'm going to kick it over to you, Nani. Tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Nani. I use they and she pronouns. Um, my funky thing is that I do not know how to play the guitar, and I was forced to take classes for a year, and I hated it. Um, but shout out <laughs> to people who play guitar. It's not my thing. <laughs> um, I came to this because I'm part of the community editorial board. Uh, I also work in the anti-sexual domestic violence field. I do a lot of education and training. 
I'm also an artist and poet teaching artist sort of person. So I am really concerned about the ways that particularly young people and communities of color are creating their narratives about their themselves and how they relate to the world, which I think is a deeply political act. Valley, how about how about you? T- tell us something about yourself and what, what brings you here. Sure. Uh, my name is Vali. I use they, them pronouns. I guess something funky about me is that I have a brown belt in karate. And what brings me to this conversation, I've been involved in politics and local organizing since I was 15 years old as a sophomore in high school. And I currently serve as the vice chair of an organization called Future Leaders in Politics, which is an organization in Connecticut that seeks to connect young people with their elected officials and get them involved in local politics. Aside from that, I also serve on my uh, local district equity council, and I'm also a member of the State Board of Education. You three, young as you are, Gen Z as you may be, are far more impressive than I think I ever was at your age. John, I'm not counting you in that number, but I feel safe to say you feel the same. I feel exact. Trust me, I feel exactly the same. Yeah, no, I that that is something that that strikes me, and I, I think. I mean, I'd love to hear from from each of you. You can just sort of jump in here. Tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, what what is what is driving you at this moment in your life to take the sort of action that, a, frankly, a whole lot of older people don't? Yeah, no, that's a powerful question. Um, you know, when it comes to our systems, right? And I mentioned how, you know, we're trying to, we have a stake in the game, we have a stake in the system. When you look at the inequities that are out there that are existing, you know, we've seen systemic inequities across, you know, I work in the mental health field. So I see it every single day with healthcare. Um, I see it every day with housing. I see it every day um, in, in criminal justice spaces. And I see how at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who are treated inequitably. They don't have enough resources. Um, and we have to do better, frankly, to serve their needs. You know, somebody who, you know, like I said, I grew up in church. I'm a minister. I'm starting school at Yale Divinity. And I really firmly believe that we have to serve the least of these. And if we can't serve the least of these, um, <laughs> you know, who are we really serving? Right. And so at the end of the day, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. As young people, we bring a different lens to that conversation. You know, when it comes to, um, our, our children, when it comes to school safety, when it comes to a lot of different things in the education system and uh, being able to equitably fund schools, some schools, you know, not getting enough funding, not having new textbooks, not having enough uh, resources to really educate kids properly. I mean, that's those are real conversations that affect day to day families um, and affect people that I know that I grew up with. When I was in high school, when I was a young person in college, in my 20s, the sort of issues of the day that mattered the most to us at the time was racism, right? Um, Racism and voting. Uh, You know, I am of the generation that was able to uh, vote for President Obama for in his first round. That was a huge deal. And um, there was a way that we cared about voting and we cared about racism, What I find striking about the three of you and certainly with young people broadly is the issues you care about are are far more vast. There's environmentalism, there is deviant sexual violence, there is obviously you're still doing the the, uh, voter engagement and civic engagement with each of your um, backgrounds. But can you talk to me a little bit, I'll, I'll kick it to you, Valet, can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, why 
are we seeing this sort of tidal shift? I mean, well, part of it is definitely like social media and access to information. Uh, I've definitely grown up where I've spent more of my life on social media than I have off of it. So my generation, like especially the younger Gen Z, um, we're able to access more information. We know about these issues where maybe um, like older Gen Z millennials, they might not have known about these issues while growing up. And also because we're teenagers um, and everything feels more like intense when you're a teenager, that connecting more information with more intense feelings makes us feel like we have to solve everything sort of. And we can also see the consequences of all these issues that have been ignored for so long, like especially climate change causing real harm to us in our lifetimes. And we can also see how they're all really interconnected. So if we want to solve one, we have to solve all of them. I I love this idea of thinking about social media and the amount of information that you have at your fingertips as a, as a thing that uh, can spur you into action. But there's a lot of information. A lot of it's just wrong, right? Like part of what you have to do is parse out thousands of bits of, of data that you're getting every single day about what's happening in the world and figure out where where the truths lie. And I guess I'm wondering how you think about that that piece of living up in a social media saturated world. This past year, I took a I was taking AP Lang in school and we did a whole unit on media literacy. And I think that like I'm lucky enough to have a really good English program at in my district. So I personally am able to like do the research I need to understand what I'm being lied to. But I think that's a really big issue of this generation that we we can't really tell what's the truth anymore. But I think it does help like a lot of people have a couple accounts that they trust um, that they fact check before. So you fact check a couple of what they talk about. And then if they're telling the truth, you just trust what they say moving forward because you can't really... Like when you're scrolling through TikTok or Instagram or something, you see so many posts a minute. You can't, it's not possible to fact check all of that to the extent that you really need to. But if I've seen it corroborated a couple of different times, then yeah, maybe I can trust what's going on. And I know that that's not really a great way to get your information, but it can be really helpful when talking about issues that aren't really reported widely in like larger mass media where as long as you have accounts you can trust, you can learn about so many more people and so many more struggles and it can get you far more involved than you normally would have been. Nani, I know that you work in you know domestic violence and advocacy. Talk to me about those kinds of struggles and um, the way that you're getting involved and the way that you find a young person's responsibility in your field. I think I came to anti-sexual domestic violence kind of like I needed a job after grad school and I'm really lucky that I fell into this field. Um, it was like during the pandemic, I was like, I need I need something. Um, and I was really lucky to land in this field because this field is thinking about like how do we build systems and communities and relationships that are protective, um, that are thinking about people's well-being and care. Um, also considering the ways that like Childhood sexual violence is extremely common. Um, it's like one in four women and one in six men. And then we know that gender nonconforming folks are, and anyone who experiences any kind of marginalization is at much higher risk. Um, so to me, that's like an immediate connection for young people. We're already 
experiencing so many different types of violences, whether that's intimate partner violence, sexual domestic violence, or like the violence of poverty, the violence of like school shootings or any of that. Like that is, we're all moving through different systems of power and being harmed by it when we can actually be building. And I think that's a great motivating factor to be building towards a world that is safer, that's healthier, that's actually concerned for our futures. Um, and sometimes I, I am a little bit cynical about all of that because I am mm. seeing the histories. I'm very concerned about the histories of social movements and like where we come from and the anti-sexual domestic violence field does not have a great history. Um, it's wrought with a lot of racism and a lot of transphobia. And so I am often cynical and I'm, but I'm also like, there is no other choice. We have to be involved in order to create a better world. That, um, that thin line between cynicism and hope. I mean, that, that sort of feels like a, a through line in a lot of the conversations I have, certainly about politics with young people today. On one hand, I'm very cynical about the world that I've been left and that I have to fix and, and what, older people might do about it. And on the other hand, I'm very hopeful. I have to be in order for me to do my work. Yeah. I think maybe specifically within sexual domestic violence, like hope is hard. <laughs> like you're hearing like the most gruesome stories, like people who are supposed to be caregivers harming the people under their care constantly. Um, and so I am often returning back to Miriam Kaba's like very, I think, um, impactful quote where she says that hope is a discipline. And for me, that's a really like world changing way of looking at this. It's not hope isn't this like fleeting childish feeling. It's not like, oh, you're a young person, like you just haven't grown up yet. (laughs) You haven't just seen the world, but rather like in order to do this work long term, you have to like believe in it. You have to work for like the vision that you want to create. And that is in, in a world that is like working against you constantly, that is an incredibly radical thing to be doing, um, which is why I think artists are really important because artists are the ones who are creating that vision of hope. I want to lean on that a, a little bit because you hit on something that is incredibly important and that I know each of you have experienced. It's sort of like you're a young person. You don't have experience in the world. You can't really consider the monumentous work it'll take to make the changes you seek. What do you respond to people who are saying things like that? <sighs> yeah, the old, you're too young. Um, what, do, what do you know? <laughs> I got that quite a few times um, when I when I went to start running <laughs> for office, right? And, you know, I think to myself, here I am, I'm this young black man, and you're telling me, what do I know? And, you know, you brought up uh, Mercy earlier about, you know, racism. I faced the racism of low expectations, the racism in the classroom of he's never going to amount to anything. (laughs) The racism of just keep passing black boys and black girls through, not really giving them tools and guidance of how to thrive and be their best selves. Right. And so for me, when I hear that, I just look at them and I say, you have no idea. (laughs) You don't, you have no idea what I've been through, even at the age of 24. And the reason why I do this work is because I know that there's other young black boys and girls out there who are still going through the same things, still experiencing the same things today that I experienced. And that's unacceptable. So if you want to come and you want to say you have no life experience, you have nothing to offer, I would say you're really coming from a small-minded perspective and you really need to step out of yourself 
and look at other people's lives, other people's experiences, their cultures, their backgrounds, and know that there's some things that they've experienced that you or or your, your kids may never have to have some empathy in that way. So, so that's such an, a key word. And Volley, I, I feel like that is something that younger people who are, who are active in politics, who are active in social causes, that's something that every single one that I've met shares, right? This idea that I can be empathetic to the other, even if I don't understand very much about how the other lives. Yeah. So, I mean, empathy is kind of step number one when you want to be involved in things like anti-racism, equity work, especially in Connecticut, um, coming from like a middle-class town, primarily white. Um, like I've never personally felt the hardest, most like discriminatory parts of racism, but I'm still able to have empathy and to understand that this isn't how we should be treating people. And I think that's something my generation has really like woken up to. We've also realized that we should do something about it. Empathy is definitely step one, but you can't really just stop there. You have to be able to act on it because without acting on it, you're just, you're just one of those people saying, oh, how sad and moving on with your life. But I think that unique combination of empathy and action has really found its root in this generation. We've really said enough is enough. There are a couple of generational shifts. Um, you know, uh, John is uh, Gen X, I am Gen Y. Um, and I believe the slate of you are Gen Z. Correct me if I'm wrong, if, if you don't identify as Gen Z. I think I might be like a younger millennial. I think so, I was born in 95. What year were you born? 95. You're you're a younger millennial for sure. That you just made the cutoff. Congratulations, yeah. you just made the cutoff. Yeah. I, I was gonna say I, I think get I'm to be a, cynical. <laughs> born in '97, I was talking with a friend of mine. He was like, "Yeah, you just the same thing. You made the cutoff right there." I'll allow it for the purpose of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> what I what I want to know from you all is what are the attributes that had that folks have put onto your generation that you feel you um you relate to and then what are the ones that you feel are most uh uh contrary to the things that you see happening in your spaces right now uh i could go first if you don't mind yeah um as as the spirit moves you a couple that i've really seen especially in online spaces is like the idea of sort of performative activism being tossed around a lot um a lot of like older activists argue that we've kind of come into the space taken over and not really learned how to do activism quote unquote and that we kind of just perform activism to seem politically correct without actually changing anything and while i do agree with some aspects of that um especially like how prevalent social media activism is where you just like put up a black square as your profile picture, but do nothing else or whatever. I kind of disagree with the idea that we don't know how to organize or how to protest or how to get things done. Like across the country, Gen Z, even like teenagers younger than myself have organized marches. Um, March for our lives is one of the biggest 
ones I can think of, the march on Washington to end gun violence. We've passed bills and legislation. We've done a lot. And I feel like older people don't really acknowledge all of that. I feel like Gen Z really gets a lot done and we need to acknowledge what they have done and not dismiss what they bring to the table, what they bring into a room, take what they say and don't take it lightly. I, I would love to hear what Nane and, and Ed have to say about, about this, but I just want to quickly say, I think that a part of that is coming from not people being patronizing and saying, you're too young. You don't know how it works. What they're thinking is, oh shit, they're coming for us, right? Like they are <laughs> actually getting things done. They're not doing things the way that we always said they had to be done, whether that's coming from politicians, adults, boomers, older activists, but they're actually saying, oh, wow, this works. We can, we can make something happen. But anyway, I, I'd love to, I'd love to hear um, any of your, your thoughts on that question. Just jumping off of Bowie's point, like historically speaking, like so many important social movements come from like a younger age group. I mean, I'm very lucky that I work in a field where I get to do social justice stuff all day. Um, but I got started politically in college when I had the time to do that. And that's really the young people who have the opportunity to do things and like think um, and imagine worlds and want better for themselves. So they have the ability to do that. Most, a lot of young people do. And then a lot of times when people grow up, they have to like go do a nine to five job that does not allow them to do, be politically active. So I just wanted to like name that. Um, I think something I think is really funny that people say about millennials is that millennials are killing this industry or like they don't want to work and like that kind of thing. Uh, the quiet quitting thing is a thing now. Uh, every couple years, there's a new version of this where it's like millennials are lazy. And also, also like corporations are bad at being employers. They're bad at <laughs> keeping their employees. And like, there's a lot of shame. Like, oh, it seems like no matter how many handouts you get, like, you guys can't really get your business together. So maybe the problem is there. And like, maybe you can't create good working conditions. And none, I mean, I this is maybe the cynical part. Like, I don't really believe that I'm going to have a retirement fund or even though I'm paying into it. Like, like that's not, I don't, that's just money that's going away in my, in my perspective. So I think that's kind of funny. Um, and like, I both agree and disagree with how that uh, stereotype is being played. I think it's, again, a usage of power, people trying to like, maintain a certain kind of status quo and i enjoy that you know certain businesses and industries are collapsing because millennials and gen z are like not really gonna do it anymore i enjoy that certain industries are collapsing <laughs> and what this is this is what i love about uh you know younger millennials or gen z that like everything is possible once you burn it down and rebuild it once you commit to the fire everything is possible and and that's like this this uh gentle rage that i hear in 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 what you're saying nani ed I, you know how are you feeling that you relate to the attributes of your uh, generation. <laughs> the things that I hear that I feel like don't apply are, you know, oh, you want everything handed to you. Um, you want, you want, like, you know, like Nani was saying, you want handouts and, you know, uh, you just want things given to you on a silver platter for it to be easy for you. Um, me getting elected to two offices was not easy. 
I had to do put in a lot of hard work over over a couple of years of consistent, diligent work to to even get my name out there. Right. And so I feel like at the end of the day, um, young people, we want to work and we just see systems sometimes as again inequitable or just they just don't work. And this needs to function in a new way. You know, maybe this is the way that people are used to. Oh, it's just the way that we've always done things, but it's that doesn't mean it's good just because it's the way that you've always done things. So you need to change it. You need to go back to the drawing board. Um, you know, when you look at you know something that's very important to me is student debt, right? So why why does the average college graduate have over thirty two thousand dollars of student debt? You know, we look at black graduates that's almost double. That's fifty two thousand dollars on average in student debt, and then. We're expected to go go get a job, you know, as we say, right, as uh, Gen Z, go get the bag, right? Go get the job and um, start a family. But we've got more debt than we have net worth. And we're trying to catch up with this mountain of debt in front of us. And everyone's just like, we're, you know, we're saying, hey, if you cancel it, then maybe we can sort of achieve the American dream, sort of kind of like we're trying to. Uh, no, you just want everything handed to you on a silver platter. But no, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. Or in some cases, are we paying lip service to solving that problem? I mean, we, as we're talking, we're seeing news about the Biden administration canceling student debt up to the grand sum of $10,000, which isn't going to do a hell of a lot for people who owe $100,000 like my friend Mercy Quay. Like that's a, that's another piece of this too, right. right? Like there are, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things that, that we say as a country we're going to do to help people. And then when it comes down to it, don't really help all that much. Exactly. Precisely. And so it's like, I think uh, Vali said it perfectly earlier, like empathy and action. You can't just be empathetic and say what you want to, you know, rally the crowd or get votes or whatever. You have to put action to it. Um, because otherwise we're going to still be stuck in the same situation for generations and we're never going to be able to build. <laughs> you know, we want to build generational wealth. We want to build for our children, but um, it makes it tough to do that when people just, uh, they say the things that we want to hear, but they don't deliver. It's also like, this is when people are like, oh, this is the way it's always been done. It's like, that's actually not true. No one's ever, no generation has been like sacked with this kind of debt ever. And exactly. like living conditions are like, you know, like, the living costs have never been this high and this unattainable. So it's actually, this has never been done this way. Exactly. You know, so the, the theme of the season, right. Um, is self-evident for you all. And as you think about your political work and your, your political engagement for you all, what are some of those things that feel self-evident, but are, are actually far more complicated or are not as simple as they appear? I mean, in the current political climate, it really does seem like basic human rights are not as self-evident as they should be, especially being as young as I am. Like, I'm still, like, I'm not that far removed from, you know, the childhood innocence of, that's not fair, everyone should, like, be treated the same or whatever. And growing up and realizing that there's this huge faction of the country that doesn't think that we the people means we all the people of America. It's part of what really pushed me to explore politics and to get involved, especially locally. And I think that the fact that human rights is up for debate in 2022 
it, it just feels like haven't we done this for the past 200 years? Aren't we over this debate already? Once people realize that underneath all the polarizing nonsense that each side says to each other, ultimately, the majority of Gen Z, we just want a happy future for everyone that everyone can access. And I think that's most self-evident to our generation. So when I think about my work in the anti-sexual domestic violence field, I am constantly thinking about what safety means. Um, and like, what do safe relationships mean? Considering that like childhood sexual violence is like so, so common. It's like, I mean, those stats that I said earlier are underreported. And then as you grow older, there are different types of sexual and domestic violence that can happen. Um, so it's, it's like a lifelong experience of violence that can happen over and over again. So I'm constantly kind of like interrogating, like, what does safety mean? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What are the systems that like actually do that? And for a really long time, the anti-sexual domestic violence field, the like mainstream version of it depended on the criminal legal system. And that meant police, that meant prisons, that meant actually like nothing about prevention, about se- preventing sexual and domestic violence, which is entirely possible to do. So I think the idea of safety is not actually self-evident. If you start asking people in communities, like it's people's answers and solutions to that are so different. But at the same time, it's also like, it's it's like the basic needs. It's like housing, food, uh, like having like a stable, like safe place to be, um, good education, transportation, all of those like very basic needs aren't being met. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I know, um, but it's something that I'm engaging with as I talk to more survivors and more advocates who are really like questioning what our systems do to people who experience violence. Yeah, for me, I, I would say, um, you know, just basic needs. Right. So uh, earlier I mentioned how I work in the mental health field. And so every day I'm seeing how there are just a a vast number of people who are struggling with finding housing, just basic housing, Um, being able to find the resources to try to get some sort of income so that they can feed themselves and their kids. Um, You know, it's, it's a very, very difficult reality that we're living in. But there are so many people and not just in Connecticut, but in this country who are in this housing crisis, really. And it's like, at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't feel safe, as Nadi was saying, right, they don't feel safe, they don't even have a roof over their heads, um, how are we really ensuring them that, you know, that that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, how are we ensuring them for them to be able to be the best possible version of themselves and thrive um, and, and the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest nations on earth, you know, how are we not providing more for our people? You know, I think I, I just want to say that this is a period of time where, you know, as folks like John and I look at the work folks like you all are doing, and uh, I'll say the responsibility that you've taken on. Um, to do this work. One thing I remain is disciplined in my hope. Thank you for that line, Nani. I just appreciate that thoughtfulness that you're bringing to this work. I just want to say, I'm just very impressed by all of you and the way that you approach your work and the way that you approach your world. And um, I thank you very much for joining in this conversation uh, with us. But more than anything else, I just, I appreciate you uh, being here doing this stuff because 
people my age, uh, people who are older than me, um, probably didn't do enough to leave you guys in a good place. And I really appreciate you picking up the slack and trying to do something that a whole bunch of people before you could have done, but didn't. So thank you. Oh my gosh, you guys, you just got a rare sighting of X guilt. And I think on that note, <laughs> I think on that note, we can close out. Thank you so much all for joining Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You can go to ctmirror.org untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social. Drop us an email. Don't forget to send us your untold stories and tell us what's going on in your community. Oh, and if you like what you've heard, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who'd love it too. Our music is composed and produced by Mark Lyon. Graphic design for Untold is by Jordana Hertz. We have digital support from Kyle Constable. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the Connecticut Mayor's executive editor, Beth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Putterman.